When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with what could be the largest ground war Europe has seen since the closing days of World War II. Russia is now on a hair trigger, positioned to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine at any moment. Here's what Secretary of State Antony Blinken told NBC's Lester Holt just moments ago. Do you have reason to believe that before this night is over, Russian forces will be engaged in something akin to a full invasion of Ukraine? Uh, I do. Unfortunately, Russia has positioned its forces uh, at the final uh, point of readiness across uh, Ukraine's borders to the north, to the east, uh, to the south. Everything seems to be in place uh, for Russia to engage in a major aggression against Ukraine. To be clear, you think tonight that could happen or will happen? Uh, look, I can't put a I can't put a date or an exact time on it. A senior U.S. defense official also tells NBC that Russia has brought in nearly 100 percent of all the forces we anticipated Putin would need. Quote, they are literally ready to go now. Additionally, Russian state media reported late today that the Russian-backed militants in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine have formally requested military intervention from Putin. The request could serve as the pretext that Putin needs to justify his invasion. Ukrainian President Zelensky pleaded for peace tonight in an emotional national address, saying that Putin wouldn't accept his phone call. This comes as Ukraine calls up its reserve troops to bolster their defenses and after their parliament today declared a state of emergency. They're also warding off another cyber attack, which a White House official says is consistent with the type of activity Russia would carry out. President Biden is now further tightening the screws on Russia, building upon the first wave of sanctions he began to issue yesterday. Today, he announced new punitive measures against the company that built the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany, a move that comes after Germany demonstrated their resolve by officially halting that project yesterday. But in contrast with the response we've seen from the Biden administration, NATO and the entire Western world, MAGA Republicans have responded to Putin's aggression with flattery, adoration, and approval. Russian state TV is reportedly showcasing how former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gushed about Putin with schoolgirl enthusiasm last week, praising the Russian tyrant for his elegant sophistication. Just listen to his choice of words. Very shrewd, very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that, uh, no, I have enormous respect for him. I consider him a uh, elegantly sophisticated counterpart. <laughs> Likewise, Fox's chief Putin apologist, Tucker Carlson, has also been embraced by the Kremlin's state media apparatus. And in an absurd rant last night, he said the United States has no reason to oppose Putin. Hating Putin has become the central purpose of America's foreign policy. It's the main thing that we talk about. What is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle class job in my town to Russia? 
Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? Not to mention, wow, that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, released yet another missive supporting Vladimir Putin over President Biden today. It comes after he praised Russian aggression as genius and parroted Putin's propaganda that Russian troops are acting as so-called peacekeepers, which they're not. In other words, Trump and his fan club, with some exceptions, are actively siding with a dictator who is seeking to upend the world order that has prevailed since the fall of the Soviet Union. But as author and columnist David Rothkopf said in an epic Twitter thread today, this is par for the course at this point for the party of Trump. Quote, they like the man they are defending, have attacked the very foundations of our system of democracy. They, like Putin, sought to discredit our electoral system and cheat it. They engineered a coup and are still defending it. This also marks an ironic pivot for the party that was literally built on decrying Soviet communism, including accusing civil rights leaders of being a fifth column, siding with the communist enemy against American greatness. Well, it turns out, OK, yes, there is a fifth column and it's right inside the Republican Party and their media apparatus, which apparently clearly has fallen in love with Russian autocratic kleptocracy. And by legitimizing Putin and advancing his goals here at home, they have officially broken with their former patron saint, Ronald Reagan, who famously called Soviet Russia an evil empire. Joining me now is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul. He's an MSNBC international affairs analyst. Julia Ayafi, founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck News. And David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and USA Today and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Uh, David Rothkopf, I am going to start with you because it was your rant that just sort of captured my attention today. Because it is, you know, I've come to expect very little from the Republican Party, to be to be blunt. I, I understand that they prefer autocracy. They want a white nationalist autocracy in the United States. They believe that white Christians are beleaguered and need to rule the United States without elections. Got it. But this is really at this point open. This is Neville Chamberlain behavior. This is appeasement. This is saying we should either side with Russia or let them run over Europe. That is new. I feel like that is something Trump brought to the table. Your thoughts? Well, I, I find the whole thing hard to believe. You know, in most of our history, when we were threatened or our allies were threatened uh, by an enemy, we tried to come together. Doesn't mean we always agreed, but we tried to make an effort to present a united front to the world. And we looked after American national interests first and foremost. Here, you have an entire movement within the Republican Party that is praising a man who is threatening an innocent, democratic country at his borders, has moved in 190,000 troops, and may at any minute unleash carnage on innocence. The president of the United States has worked with our allies in Europe, with NATO, with the EU, has worked with Ukraine in order to try to mount a defense to dissuade Putin from doing this. And these people are praising Putin. The president, the former president of the United States, Trump, is calling him a genius. You just showed Mike uh, Pompeo fawning over him before I came on. I just noticed that uh, Mike Pence is going on another network in a little bit to talk about the weakness of Biden. Nikki Haley talking about the weakness of Biden. This is outrageous behavior. And it would be more shocking 
if the Russians didn't help elect Donald Trump in 2016, if Donald Trump didn't embrace Putin and value him over our intelligence community, if Donald Trump did not cater to Russian interests ahead of U.S. interests time after time after time, we've had a switch. There was one party in the United States that supports U.S. interests, and there is another party that actively opposes them. And Julia Ioffe, just to be clear again, they are not supporting, you know, Germany, who are now, you know, our, our, our bosom friend or, or Britain over the United States and saying, well, they like Boris Johnson better than they like uh, Joe Biden. Russia, the, the man who runs Russia, I won't say all the Russian, Russian people, just this guy, Vladimir Putin, ex-KGB, hates the United States wants to destroy the United States, hates NATO, hates the West. These people are siding with someone who, am I wrong here, hates us. I don't know that he hates us. I think he sees us as his main adversary and he wants to be our equal in the world and he wants to restore this kind of Cold War balance of power. He thinks the Cold War was great. We should get back to it. Um, But I do think that some of this gets to our toxic political culture where um, at least, and especially on the Republican side, it's more important to be against the other party, even if it's the president of the United States who's dealing with an international crisis. And if that means siding with a foreign dictator, at least you're not siding with a Democrat. Uh, the other thing I will say is that what you're seeing is just the kind of cherry on top. There has have been connections at the grassroots level and at the kind of donor level for well over a decade between the American right wing and uh, right wing elements in the Russian state. So, for example, the World Congress of Families has worked really closely with organizations in Russia to, for example, um, help them write these laws that ban gay propaganda in Russia. Um, they are helping Russian right-wingers and the Russian Orthodox Church push the government to ban abortion in Russia, which has been legal there since 1920 and is just not a topic of discussion. It is completely settled at this point. But American conservatives are going over there, pumping money into it and working to overturn this issue. You saw Maria Butina, the red-headed... Uh, influence agent, I guess I'll call her, who worked very closely with the NRA and her political patron, who was then a member of the Russian parliament, went on NRA junkets and hosted them in Russia. Like, there is an ideological affinity there. Like you said, they see Russia as a white Christian conservative nation where there are only two genders and only one kind of sexuality. That is not an accurate picture of Russia, but they think that that is the kind of, you know, white Christian autocracy that we ought to be more like. So and then on top of that, you have the kind of team sports nature that American politics has taken on in recent days. So that's what I think is going on. Absolutely. And I mean, the the reality is, um, former Ambassador McFaul, Russia understands the United States to have this this part, right? And, and he's always needling it. Uh, I should say Putin does. He understands where to stick the pin in because he understands that that exists. And he did it with Donald Trump. He stokes it on the right. He understands that, that any weakness between the two parties, any division, he can exploit it because he does want to replace us. He doesn't want what you have as a sort of U.S.-led global order. He wants it. He wants to be equal or even superior to us in that in that order. So I wonder, from your point of view, 
what he's doing right now to me feels irrational because being cut off from the entire financial system, he may be able to survive that because he's personally, you know, multi-billionaire, but not everyone in his country can. The body bags aren't coming to his door. They're coming to the Russian people's door. Do you see this as irrational behavior on his part? The things that still could be done, these sanctions could become devastating. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care because you just are rightly described. They're not going to hurt him. And this is not about where the stock market in Russia is going to be in a week or a month or even months from now. Putin's playing a long game here, a very – the word rationality is a very elastic term, right? Is he <laughs> rational or not? But he is an ideologue. Let's use that word. And as Julie was just describing, he has an ideology. By the way, he has followers not just in the United States, that you've all been talking about, but throughout most of Europe, there are pockets of people that think like him and line up with him along that ideological way. But there's going to come a moment of truth very soon. There is good and evil in the world. There is a autocratic Putin that is about to attack a democratic Ukraine. And if, if all the predictions that we have, all the intelligence is right, tens of thousands of people are going to die. And Mr. Pompeo's comments that he just made yesterday or today and Mr. Trump's comments that he just made are going to look really, really silly. They're going to look atrocious that they were uh, when it was good and evil. They were standing next to evil. And the second thing that they fundamentally don't get, they always talk about Biden's week, Biden's week, Biden's week, Biden's week. What makes us weak in the world is this kind of division. This is exactly what makes us weak. When we are divided amongst ourselves, when it's a clear cut thing between good and evil, we are on the eve of probably the biggest war in Europe since 1939. And what are they focused on? Attacking the president of the United States. That makes us weak. Yeah, even Ted Cruz figured out that the right thing to do was to stand down on blocking those State Department nominees and praise Biden for at least being strong in the face of Putin. I want to ask you very quickly, Ambassador McFall, what do you make of this? So Germany also is is, in, is, is having to have some resolve here because Nord Stream 2 is going to help them economically. They've stood, stood strong. Now you've got these sanctions that are against the, you know, the, the people on the Russia side that did Nord Stream 2. Dmitry Medvedev tweeted sort of some snark at Germany saying, well, I guess Europe's going to have to get used to really expensive gas and, and thinking that Europe won't hold because their economic interests will eventually overtake their, um, their, their understanding of good and evil. What do you make of the potential fortitude of our NATO allies, of Europe, of the EU? Well, I think if what everybody thinks is going to happen, that Putin goes in big and there's a massive war, there will be comprehensive sanctions, and I think they'll stand together. I think the Biden administration actually has done a pretty incredible job of building that coalition. I would not have said that just four or five weeks ago. And I want to say very bluntly, I support it 100%. If you want 100% sanctions, I want 110. Uh, if you want to go after their kids, I want to go after their grandkids. So on that dimension, I think it's absolutely right. We do whatever we can. And at the same time, I have no illusions that that threat of sanctions is going to affect Putin's calculus at this tragic moment in world history. 
Yeah, indeed. And, and one day, I think when people look back on what he did, I think the term rationality will absolutely be debated about what he thinks that he is accomplishing here. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Michael McFall, Julie Ayafi, and David Rothkoff. Before we the break, I do want to show you some powerful image, it, images in support of the people of Ukraine. In Berlin tonight, the Brandenburg Gate was lit up in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. A similar tribute tonight in Paris, where City Hall was illuminated in blue and yellow as the crisis with Russia deepens. And up next on the readout, Russia is accused of a major cyber attack today on Ukrainian government and banking websites. Plus, staggering new information about the extent of the ongoing terror campaign against historically black colleges and universities in this country. And President Biden is also said to be very close to announcing his historic choice for the Supreme Court. And a clear favorite has emerged. In New York, a major development, meanwhile, tonight in the Manhattan investigation of the Trump Organization. And tonight's absolute worst is no stranger to fraud. His company committed a lot of fraud, massive fraud. Now, he has an elaborate plan that would allow everyone to share in his fraudulent vision of America. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Russia has nearly all the forces in place for a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. But these days, wars don't just play out on the battlefield. Less visible are Russia's cyber attacks. Today, the websites of Ukraine's government, foreign ministry, and state security service were down in what the government said was the start of another mass distributed denial-of-service attack, also known as a DDoS attack. The attack also impacted some Ukrainian banks. The White House told NBC News, quote, we consider these further incidents to be consistent with the type of activity Russia would carry out in a bid to destabilize Ukraine. Ukraine has suffered a string of cyber attacks that Kyiv has blamed on Russia. Just last week, a separate cyber attack targeted the online networks of Ukraine's defense ministry and two banks. Joining me now is Clint Watts, who worked as a consultant to the FBI counterterrorism division and is now a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And Malcolm Nance, a former U.S. Naval Intelligence officer and the author of the upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans. Uh, thank you both for being here. Clint, I will start with you. Explain what a DDoS or DDoS attack is um, and how likely is it that Ukraine would know for sure that it emerged out of Russia? Yeah, Joy. So a way to think about it is this is not what people often think, which is a hacker penetrating into a system and shutting down a computer network. Instead, the whole idea is that you call up massive numbers of computers to essentially hit a website for request at the exact same time. It, it, imagine a hose and a funnel, you're overflowing the funnel with water. The systems can't respond to it. 
we even see this uh, when we have very famous pictures. Maybe they show up on social media in America. You'll see somebody say the system goes down. Same effect, except it's not intentional. A DDoS attack is an intentional attack, and it's very hard to prove exactly where it comes from because it's literally leveraging millions of computers around the world using a botnet, usually, to actually direct all that energy at one single target in cyberspace. So difficult to prove. But when you look at the timing, the consistent pattern, this mirrors the same target, the same technique that we saw in Ukraine last week. And what did we see last week? Ramping up a military action by Russia. What are we hearing about today? The exact same thing. So it seems highly unlikely it would be anyone other than Russia. So you've just recently returned uh, from Ukraine, Malcolm. How vulnerable are they to this um, and how prepared um, do you do you think that they are? Well, they're extremely vulnerable because they're almost dependent on cellular uh, networks and Internet networks all throughout the country. And I mean, they are a very wired country. I've been to some extremely small villages out in the Carpathians uh, that were very, very solid cellular, uh, you know, cellular networks with 5G. Um, and that's the way that they communicate as well. I, I was quite surprised how many people don't actually have satellite television anymore, but mm -hmm. are actually using all IP Internet based information. The Russians are going to attack that infrastructure. And I think it'll be one of the first indications that something is going on, not just taking down ministry websites, but actually blinding the entire country almost simultaneously. But, you know, I know that we're, we're, we're constantly worried about the cyber threat and these cyber threats themselves may, in fact, spill over to the West. I, you know, I mean, if I were the Russians, I would uh, ensure that at the time that the world is looking at uh, Ukraine on the initial uh, assault, that maybe they do a very soft uh, cyber attack against the West just to stun us for a short bit and to make it appear that the capabilities they're exercising in Ukraine are far larger uh, than they actually are. Uh, and that, I guess, that, that brings me to the question that I had for you, Clint, because uh, so, so Russia's hybrid war, this is a, a thing The Economist, a piece The Economist posted on Tuesday. Many of the murky actions attributed to Russia since 2014, from cyber attacks to assassinations abroad, meddling in elections in the West, and now the threat of invasion have been labeled as forms of hybrid war. They are a, a country that uh, has been known to, or government that has been known to do that. And so I guess that the, Amer the, the those in our audience would wonder, how vulnerable are we? Um, to Russia deciding to expand their attacks, as Malcolm just said, beyond Ukraine to the West, including to us? I think it really depends kind of on what Russia assesses in the coming days. Uh, the threat is from things like sanctions or additional levering that you might see from NATO and European partners. Uh, right now, they're going to use it part and parcel with their ground campaign inside Ukraine. This is very traditional. The last eight years in Ukraine, they've been under nonstop cyber assault. So they're, they're used to it. it. It definitely causes lots of havoc and problems, but they are somewhat resilient to it. In the U.S., if Netflix goes down for an hour, the country goes into chaos. I mean, we're just not used to this kind of sustained cyber attack. We expect to have everything at our fingertips and for it not to be interrupted. So it's partly just human resilience. I think beyond that, there's really three layers to it. We see what's going on inside Ukraine right now. The next layer really is Germany, France, and the UK is really the backbone of NATO. They're the ones that have to bring a lot of these sanctions, and they suffer greater costs. And this is where cyber and information come together. You'll see a lot of cyber attacks directed. I would expect Germany would be number one because they're holding out on Nord Stream 2. And that will be coupled with actual disinformation 
pushing into these Western European countries, trying to pit them against their elected leaders, put lots of pressure from the inside. And Joy, I don't have to tell you, if you watch another network right now, you'll see the success of those information campaigns here in America, where those lines are spouted by former politicians and people with a very loud voice. I have to ask you about that uh, as well, Malcolm, because, I mean, we are seeing the former United States Secretary of State, um, I'm sure Tuckums, uh, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump being used by Russian state media, which is controlled media by the Kremlin, using Americans now as sort of their chief propagandists. Your thoughts? You know, I find it absolutely fascinating as a uh, as a student of World War Two that uh, at the end of World War II, uh, Tokyo Rose and Lord Haw Haw, two of the largest propagandists, uh, one for the Germans, one for the Japanese, were both tried for war crimes. Uh, we actually have an environment now where hiding behind the First Amendment, and, and they have a right to say what they do say. I, I'll defend that right with my life. But they are aiding at a time uh, in, in an attempt to dismantle a democracy as it is facing an existential threat and acting as advocates for a foreign power. Uh, look, I just love Ukraine this morning. Uh, it was a very teary, heartbreaking scene uh, leaving this country, leaving people behind that we've known and, and worked with over this time. And they just cannot understand Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and, and they understand Paul Manafort. I mean, the man worked with Yanukovych, tried to yeah. dismantle their country. But all the rest of the Republican Party siding against them uh, is absolutely heartbreaking to them. But look, these people now have steely resolve. One last thing, Joy, I want to make clear. Uh, when they do this hybrid cyber warfare against Ukraine, it's going to be followed up almost instantly, if not within the hour of a massive kinetic attack. They are going to use long-range battlefield ballistic missiles to knock out TV infrastructure. They're not just going to jam Ukraine. They're going to blow up all the cellular networks. They're going to use airstrikes and physical attacks that will kill thousands. So when we say cyber warfare and hybrid warfare, We're moving away from hybrid back to a form of asymmetrics where they dominate the ability to kill Ukrainians. And that's going to be a big part of it. It is. And and, and yet you have Americans that are siding with them, which is insane. Uh, Malcolm Nance. It is uh, Malcolm Nance. Clint Watts. Thank you. Uh, Clint Watts is sticking around. Thank you, Malcolm. And up next, new information from the FBI reveals how many HBCUs were targeted by the recent avalanche of bomb threats. And the numbers? Oh, they're alarming. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It's Monday night. It's 
Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. The FBI announced today that between January 4th and February 16th, a total of 57 historically black colleges and universities, houses of worship and other faith based and academic institutions were targeted by bomb threats. That's more than one threat per day. And it doesn't include the latest incident, Hampton University in Virginia receiving a threat this morning. The FBI notes that their investigation is of the highest priority for the bureau and involves 31 field offices. The FBI is investigating these cases as racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism and hate crimes. Although at this time, no explosive devices related to these threats have been found. The FBI, it says, takes all of these threats with utmost seriousness and will remain vigilant to protect our communities. By our count, 35 HBCUs have received bomb threats this year. That means that more than 30% of the hundreds of thousands of students attending an HBCU had their education disrupted and their safety put in question. HBCUs are havens for the black community. The first schools educated the descendants of formerly enslaved people and gave black Americans the space to learn when they were excluded from other institutions. And now those schools are under threat. Back with me is MSNBC national security analyst Clint Watts. And joining me now is Howard University president, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick. And Dr. Frederick, I will start with you. Talk a little bit about what these threats to your school, to Howard University and to other HBCUs have done to the community um, that goes to the, that, that attends and works at these colleges. Yeah, it certainly has been disruptive. As you can imagine, it has instilled fear um, in the community, some apprehension. And uh, to be quite honest, some anger as well. Uh, you have young people who are already disadvantaged uh, coming to our institutions to pursue a better opportunity, pursue a better life um, in earnest, um, not really uh, causing anybody else any type of trouble and having these attacks. I mean, even without finding any devices, et cetera, as you can imagine, we've had to suspend class. We're using more resources for security that we could be putting into these young people. And so it's extremely disruptive. I think more impo most importantly, the mental health, when you look at the impacts of the pandemic and now this, um, it's a lot of, of mental health stress. So we've also had to increase our resources there as well. But we're going to remain resilient. Uh, indeed. And, you know, I want to put this map again for you, Clint. Um, this is the, the, the HBCUs targeted just this year, 31 schools. And you can see... Well, it looks like the old Confederate states. Um, they're mainly in there in the South. We, of course, there are many, many in, uh, HBCUs in the South. Um, and I wonder, just as and as somebody who worked for the FBI, how do you even go about figuring out who did this? Um, they've definitely already determined at the DOJ that these are hate crimes, that they are racially motivated. Yeah, I, I think it's obvious just looking at the pattern that someone's gone down the full list and tried to intimidate and threaten people across the board. Uh, based on a specific thing, which is race. And I think that's why you're seeing the hate crimes division take this on. Separately, you have different modes of communications and mechanisms of communications. However, all of those leave signatures, especially these threats that are coming in in the online portals. 
I would imagine the FBI is probably the only organization in the world that can put those pieces together, and they will start to move and hunt that down right away. I think the next thing is how quickly can they put those pieces together or do they end with a lot of dead ends? It just depends on the sophistication of the people who are per- perpetrating this. If they're sloppy, they don't really understand their internet technology, this can move very, very quickly. However, it, it also could be tough to put together. If they know how to cloak themselves online, they change their pattern up in terms of these threats. If that is the case, that would mean a more sophisticated actor, and it would likely mean a more sophisticated threat beyond just, hey, I'm going to organize this campaign of death threats uh, against all of these universities. It could be they have the sophistication to actually put a plot together as well. So I'm hoping it, it is the former rather than the latter. And, you know, it's pretty, and I said 31 um, schools, I meant 35 schools have been targeted just this year. And uh, Dr. Frederick, how has the university had to sort of change the way things operate on campus? Because I know some people are now back on campus. Everything is sort of hybrid because of COVID. Um, But how have you had to change the way that things operate um, at Howard due to these threats? So um, what we've been doing, the first thing is we've been educating uh, the entire campus about how to react to these threats. We have, um, obviously, we have lockdowns. We have uh, where we want people to stay in place, et cetera. So we've had training recently. The FBI actually participated in that. And again, as you can tell, I mean, that that creates a lot of psychological stress. So we've had increased counselors. Uh, we have undercover security as well across the campus looking for any suspicious activity. We've had to increase our patrols as well, and especially in the residence halls, because actually our residence halls are full. Uh, we are back to face-to-face uh, for the most part. So the majority of our campus is back back there. And then just as importantly, we run a hospital as well. And as you can imagine, ha- have, having a bomb threat on campus when somebody does not specify a location, having to evacuate a hospital in the event that something does happen is a very different circumstance. So planning those logistics has been uh, the other thing that we've been doing. So it, it has been taking up a significant number of resources and uh, manpower as well, to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am sure. Well, I'm wishing uh, everyone the best. Um, and it is notable, I think we should note, that the these ramped up with the start of Black History Month, um, not probably coincidentally. Um, Clint Watts, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick, thank you both very much. Stay safe. Up next, TikTok. The White House says it will have a Supreme Court nominee by the end of the month, which is Monday. We also need to talk about today's resignation of two Manhattan prosecutors working on the investigation into Trump's shady business practices. What does it mean for that investigation? We're back right after this. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Yes, Tuckums and DeSantis, it is still legal. Okay, let's talk about someone who right-wing politicians want to erase from the history books. Meet Constance Baker Motley, who on this day in 1965 became the first black woman elected Manhattan Borough President. And that is just a fraction of why she's a legend. Motley was the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's first woman attorney, a protege of the great Thurgood Marshall. She wrote the initial complaint in Brown versus the Board of Education. She played a key role in ending segregation in landmark civil rights cases. And as the first black woman to argue before the Supreme Court, she won nine of her 10 cases. She also led campaigns to desegregate Southern universities, including the University of Mississippi. She is pictured here with James Meredith. And that was all before she became the first black woman nominated to the federal bench by President Lyndon Johnson in 1966. 
Mississippi's James Eastland, the Democratic Dixiecrat chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and notorious racist segregationist, delayed her confirmation process for seven months. And as the New York Times reported at the time, Eastland tried to smear her as a communist. Sound familiar? The story of this unsung hero is timely, since at any moment, President Biden is expected to announce his nominee to be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. He's interviewed three candidates and pledged to announce his choice to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer by the end of the month. The finalists, federal judges Ketanji Brown Jackson and Michelle Childs and California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Joining me now is Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. Ellie, it is always great to see you. Let's talk SCOTUS. Okay, so Biden, you know, it is allegedly down to three. Um, The thinking is that it's probably Ketanji Brown Jackson. Do you have any scoops or any other intel for us? Now, I have I have no insider information about this. It's like, I call the White House. They don't always call me back. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, but but as much as as the zeitgeist is around Brown Jackson, and I do think that's who the pick is going to end up being, let's not minimize the importance of these interviews. The president of the United yeah. States and their Supreme Court nominee do develop a relationship. They have to kind of be in it together. Um, it's funny. This is the, the nominee to replace Stephen Breyer. One of the reasons why... Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was nominated before Breyer is that for this kind of final interview process, Breyer had recently been hit by a bike, uh, been hit on his bike, and he was in the hospital. He came out of the hospital kind of like on Percocet uh, <laughs> to, to do this interview with Clinton, and Clinton just like didn't like him. There's like, that's something, something weird about that guy. <laughs> Um, and that's one of the big reasons Breyer didn't get the job um, the first time around. So you never know what could happen in this inter- in this final interview phase, the the final rose phase. Um, but yes, the all of the all of the, the 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 power right now seems to be behind Brown Jackson, who let's remember has been the front runner for this job the whole not time. Just, right, well, not just the whole right for six years. She was in the final yeah. room when. Obama nominated Garland. Uh, she, right. She's been the person for, for, for a while now. And, and I mean, the thinking was that Merrick Garland going into AG is what opened the seat for her because she's been the person that's been the focus. But I have to ask you, what have you made of the kind of um, I- internal attempt to sort of elevate childs, right? And there was a pretty overt campaign, I would say, by Jim Clyburn to do that. Um, what did you make of what did you make of that? It seemed like there was a Lindsey Graham Clyburn kind of, you know, attempt to really push her um, that I don't know. What do you make of it? I mean, we're Democrats, right? Like Democrats, Democrats don't know how to do this any other way than having some internal strife and battles. Like I, I try not to pay to, to pay too much attention to the to the internal divisions. One of the things I will say, and, and I wrote about this um, for the nation, is that while I do think that in general the Supreme Court and courts in general um, are not diverse enough in terms of professional backgrounds, in terms of educational yeah. backgrounds, um, I think that's a really strong point and a strong point in child's favor, in fact. Um, however, mm-hmm. for this appointment, I would not denigrate or ding the, the women who did go to the elite Ivy League schools from this position, if for no other reason, then going to elite Ivy League schools is one of the ways, as a minority and certainly as a black woman, that you protect yourself 
from the baseless attacks that we know conservatives are going to make about their intelligence and their and, and their credentials, right? So like Brown yep. Jackson is going to do better on a test than you, Mr. Hawley, or you, Mr. Kennedy, or you, Mr. Graham. And so like it's important for her to be able to kind of represent that through the kind of elite educational institution. So I don't kind of yeah. I don't do, I don't take points away from her just because she went yeah. to Harvard and, and Harvard College. Yeah, absolutely. And she was and, and Wicker, too. Wicker tried to th- throw some shade at her, but she'd do better on a test than you, too, man. Um, let's let's, let's uh, switch. Blackburn, right. Like this is not. Easy, easily. Like when she was half asleep, she would be able to do that. Um, let's talk Trump for a minute. Let's t- let's make a little bit of a turn here. This shocked me today. I saw your Twitter, uh, and I, so I know it shocked you too. Two of the prosecutors that are leading the New York Trump Organization inquiry resigned. Um, Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz submitted their resignations after two Manhattan district attorney, after Manhattan district attorney, the new one, Alvin Bragg, indicated to them that he had doubts about moving forward with a case against Trump. Without Mr. Bragg's commitment to move forward, the prosecutors late last month postponed a plan to question at least one witness before the grand jury. They've not questioned any witnesses in front of the grand jury for more than a month. Shocking to me. Shocking to you. What do you think? This stinks. Alvin Bragg needs to answer some questions soon, right? And there are two important questions that he needs to answer, I believe, for this decision. One, Dunn and Pomerantz, the two prosecutors who quit, are very respected prosecutors within New York legal circles. So why did they think they had a case that they could pursue against, you know, to the grand jury, but Bragg didn't? What? He, He can't just say, like, oh, we didn't have a case. No, because two of your prosecutors thought you did. So you got to explain to me why you have this, let's say, call it a minority position compared to the other people in your office about the culpability of one Mr. Donald Trump. Number two question he has to answer, as 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 the Times reported, they haven't really interviewed people for a month. He's only been on the job for two months. So what did he know before he was elected about this case that made him want to back off of that case? And why didn't he not bring that up during the election? Because, I don't know, New Yorkers might have wanted to know his thoughts on the Trump prosecution that he clearly pre-made before he got into office or else he wouldn't have been able mm-hmm. to shut the investigation down if that's what's happened so quickly. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to reserve some judgment, um, but, but Mr. Bragg has some questions to answer about this decision. I have a third question. I'm not a lawyer. But how could Michael Cohen have testified under oath that Donald Trump levered the value of his properties, depending on whether he wanted to get a loan or or skate on his taxes? And how did he go to jail for signing a document, right, to give money to Donald Trump, the person Donald Trump was having uh, an affair with? But that's a crime. But when he literally gave them documents, allegedly, I'm sure he's talked to those prosecutors and gave them evidence that he did what Cohen said he did, and y'all not going to prosecute that? If you or I did that, Ellie, I bet you Bragg would prosecute us. That's all I'm going to say. I, I need to know yeah. more. Uh, Ellie how Mastyle, would Michael Cohen, one person, get burnt up behind this? How? Right? Make, how, make how it make that, sense. How is that possible? Ha- make it make so. sense. He was working for Donald Trump. Anyway, don't move. We got more. Tonight's absolute worst is straight ahead with a hilariously misguided attempt to kickstart the apparently non-existent Republican agenda. Kick, kick, kick. We're, after, we're back after this. <laughs> With Republicans just clamoring to regain control of Congress this fall, they have been unwilling to explain what their agenda would actually even be. If Republicans take back control of Congress after the midterms, what would be your agenda? 
That is a very good question. And I'll let you know when we take it back. Well, this comes as no surprise because the Republican Party has no real positive agenda for the American people. Their 2020 platform could have been written on a cocktail napkin. It was the word Trump. They're literally nothing more than the party of the twice impeached, disgraced Florida retiree, which is why we saw more than a dozen Republican congressional candidates flock down to Mar-a-Lago today to kiss the ring of their dear leader's stubby little finger. But despite Mitch McConnell saying, don't say nothing. If you still want to know what direction the banned books party wants to take this country, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who leads the Republican election effort to take over the Senate, is giving us all a sneak peek. Scott released what he calls his 11 point plan to rescue America, which is a mix of conservative red meat, culture war detritus and weird manifesto stuff that really kind of sounds like a bad B movie. His leading pillar is that our kids will say the Pledge of Allegiance, salute the flag, learn that America is a great country. We will inspire patriotism and stop teaching the revisionist history of the radical left. Now, I assume by revisionist history, he means teaching the accurate history of our country, even the parts that might make white students feel uncomfortable. In another section, Scott claims they will starve Washington's economy and stop socialism and reduce the government workforce by 25 percent in five years. Now he's talking about creating massive unemployment because 25 percent of the government workforce would mean laying off more than half a million people. And while he's doing that, he's indicated that he and his comrades would be raising taxes on millions and millions of Americans, including those living in poverty. He writes, all Americans should pay some income tax and have some skin in the game, even if a small amount. Currently, over half of Americans pay no income tax. Wait, hold on a second. Didn't Mitt Romney say something like that before he lost to President Obama? 47%, anybody? Then Florida's dollar store, Voldemort, proceeded to try to deny what's written in his own plan. Chucky Schumer saying that you, your plan is to raise taxes on more than half of Americans. I didn't see that in your plan. Did you have that in your plan? It, was it an invis- invisible ink in the copy that I got? Because oh, I no. didn't see that. I mean, no. Chucky. And then his manifesto gets even weirder. He adds that all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. So wait, Congress would have to repass Social Security, Medicare, and the Civil Rights Act again every five years? Okay, Rick, what happens if somebody commits, say, let's say, massive fraud against Medicare, and then Medicare expires under your plan? Trixie, Trixie, Rixie. And for those who say Congress would never let those things expire, I note the Violence Against Women Act, which expired three years ago. Scott's plan even adds a touch of Taliban. In an attack on the transgender community, he declares that men are men, women are women, and unborn babies are babies. We believe in science. And no Republican agenda would be complete without paying dues to orange Julius Caesar. It not only calls for finishing the wall on the southern border, but also naming it after Trump. And of course, there is the section devoted entirely to our elections that says ballots can only be submitted at a polling location by a voter or the post office. No ballots shall show up after Election Day shall be counted ever. So wait, does that mean that the thousands of American service members or diplomats working overseas, what, should their votes just not count, Rick? The fact that the Republican leadership decided to leave a void where an agenda should go, only to have a troll like Rick Scott fill it with a laundry list of Republican grievances, that is tonight's absolute worst. And that is also tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. 
That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.